So uh, that song just really led us into uh, some interesting, interesting thoughts. So, but before we get there, let's talk about some things that are excitingly going on right now. Uh, those of you who were a part, I think Jeff had several of you in adult Sunday school class today. So that has started meeting at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings as of today. And so we're blessed to have that happen. And then I think some folks were still by Zoom maybe. And so uh, praise the Lord for that. Next week, uh, beginning on Tuesday, the 11th, ladies, this is for you, Missy Sims is starting a women's fellowship group. Now, they had one meeting already, and several people showed up. You may be here that came to that. But this is for all of you ladies who would like to come August the 11th at 5 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. It's going to be a time of worship and singing and prayer and also following a book study by Elizabeth Elliott. If you remember that name, I'm going to talk about Jim Elliott here in just a little bit. But the book is titled Keep a Quiet Heart. Uh, Missy says she has books, so if you like one of those, you can see her. If you're interested in coming to that, you need her contact information, let me know right after the service and we can get that to you, okay? So she would want you to make sure you connect with her. But that's very exciting that we're having that happen. Next Sunday also, you'll remember, been announcing this for a while, that we will be having our communion service. Haven't had that for several months, and so we're anxious to get back. And, And by the way, you're looking so good this morning. Just wonderful. Those of you who are uh, behind the camera there, you can't see these gorgeous faces, but it just looks so good, uh, you being here today, and we're just blessed. And your voices sounded so good today, too. So I don't know if you, were you playing like a recording or something? And that was what it was? Okay, no, that wasn't what it was. You did a great job. Just, it's good to be a part of the church, isn't it? I'm not just talking about Laurel Hill. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a great blessing. So anyway, we're going to do communion next week. When you come in, make sure you grab one of the little cups. I was telling the early service that I've already tested them. Okay, And, um, and Hamp was out of town, so I snuck one of those. And I just wanted to make sure it was going to be fit. So I pretended I was Nehemiah. I became your cupbearer. And uh, it works. So uh, it's going to be a real blessing. It'll be different for us. So when you come in, grab a cup in the back. Brother Carl will help you. When you leave, just hold on to it. You can put it in the trash as you leave, okay? But next Sunday, we will observe the Lord's table, and it's going to be just a blessed time. So anyway, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, just share with him our hearts this morning and ask him to open our minds and help us to hear clearly. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, what a joy it is to be gathered with your people. Lord, as you commanded us many, many, many years ago that we are to fellowship with one another, and there's just such an energy that comes from gathering together in your name. So we're here together not only to love one another and to fellowship with one another, but to hear from you. Lord, that's really our priority. We want to know what you say. We want to hear what you teach us. So we would ask that you keep us from distraction today and help us to hear you through your word as you help us with this subject today. So we thank you and we praise you. We honor you and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, as I was saying, I I feel necessary to just interrupt our study in Matthew once again because of what I believe the Lord would have us to talk about. And that is, I want to talk about the subject of discouragement this morning. Okay. Many of you all are feeling the effects of the virus uh, just uh, this week got word from one of our dear sisters who'd been at her job for 21 years, was let go. Uh, troublesome, trying times as people face that. Just yesterday, got word from a dear brother who had been at his job for 41 years since high school and was let go. 
And so uh, these are challenging days, okay? a lot of uncertainty. And not only are we facing now the, uh, the things being out in public with the masks and whatnot. And by the way, we'll be giving you some more information after some meetings, uh, especially a meeting today, uh, about the church and where we fit in all of the new Albemarle County proclamation, if you will. But um, just all of that has caused my heart to need to look into the word of the Lord to see what God says about the help that we can get from him when it comes to dealing with discouragement. So that's what I want to do for us today is just look in his word and uh, get a few points from the gospel of John. So if you want to turn there, you can watch it on the screen. Uh, John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is going to be our text today addressing this subject of uh, discouragement. The Lord uh, has not left us comfortless. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful, and thank you for that, brother. It is wonderful that our God has not left us in a place of living continually in discouragement, but he has given us the truth of life to know how to come out of that. So if you're able, please stand as we read through verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read from verse 1 through 14. If you can't stand that long, certainly okay. Keep your seat. But in honor of the Lord, we'll stand. So Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on mine own initiative, but the will of the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe me because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. Praise the Lord. Wonderful words from our Savior. Wonderful, wonderful words. So, If you're going to make some notes, and you can word your notes the way you choose to do, I put them in the way that made sense to me, and hopefully it'll make sense to you. But I've titled this simply, Help When Our Hearts Are Troubled. Help When Our Hearts Are Troubled. And here's the truth, beloved. The truth is, everyone experiences discouragement, right? I mean, can we get an amen on that? It is true, isn't it? We all feel the effects of discouragement. It's normal for all of us, and unfortunately, there are no vaccines for it. Can't make one for discouragement. It'd be nice, but it doesn't happen. 
But the Lord certainly does help us. In fact, there's no medications that I know of that we can take. There's no real psychological help that can give us everything we need. Uh, but the Lord certainly does that. And just the reality is we all feel it at times and in the most inopportune places and in the most inopportune times. In fact, none of us go, boy, I wish I could have some discouragement right now, right? I mean, it's just not the way we're built. We try to get rid of discouragement, but it does happen at crazy times. Some of you all, if you're sports people, I'm going to make mention of several sports figures here this morning. Uh, you'll remember former heavyweight, and I'm going back to the 80s, okay? So we're dating ourselves a little bit. Um, his name was um, James Quick Tellus. I actually did a little bit of reading on him, and uh, he fought Mike Tyson when Mike Tyson was 19 years of age. So those of you who follow the boxing world may remember him. Well, he tells a story of coming from Oklahoma where he was a cowboy, self-proclaimed, who fought out of Chicago in the early 80s. So the first time he came to Chicago, he says it was a windy day, and he got off the bus, and he had two cardboard suitcases under each arm in downtown Chicago, and he stopped to look up at the Sears Tower, and he says, I put my suitcases down, and I looked at the tower, and I said to myself, I'm going to conquer Chicago. And when I looked down, the suitcases were gone. <laughs> so you can imagine if, uh, not to mention just having lost suitcases in travel, what it would be like to make that kind of proclamation. And uh, supposedly those are direct quotes from him. So it comes from inopportune times. But here's some others, you know, people that deal with discouragement. You remember the name Michael Jordan? If you followed his life, you may or may not know this, but he was actually cut from his high school basketball team you can believe that certainly was and the reason was because his coach says he wasn't tall enough how about that but listen what he says these are quotes i went to my room closed the door and cried for a long time i just couldn't stop crying and for a while somebody writes he went to give up basketball altogether until his mom convinced him otherwise isn't it great to have moms like that what would the world of basketball be without Michael Jordan? Good grief. How about Walt Disney? You ever heard of him? Did you know that he was fired from a newspaper for lacking imagination? Yes. It's true. In his early days, before he started Walt Disney World or Disney World, he was actually fired for not having imagination. I guess he took that to heart, didn't he? Boy, talking about an imagination. Steve Jobs, you're, you're familiar with that name, that he was fired from the company he created. That was Apple. But did you know he was fired by the guy that he had hired? That would be a little discouraging. Um, but you know the story. He was hired back in 97 as the market share changed. He was hired back and everything changed from there. But yeah, sure enough, fired. How about Oprah Winfrey? You ever heard that name? She was demoted from her job as a news anchor because of her empathy. True story. You can look this up. I actually found these as, as reality. She's sitting behind a news desk and uh, at the place where she was working as a news anchor. And uh, the boss said, no, you're just way too emotional and too empathetic with people. It doesn't work on the news. And so she was let go. And boy, history changed after that. She took that to heart as well. How about Albert Einstein? You probably heard of him. Unable to speak until he was four years of age. One teacher told his parents, your son, quote, will never achieve anything good in life, unquote. Amazing, isn't it? Discouragement comes in every form to everybody. Now, I'm not saying anything particularly about these people. I'm not promoting one or the other. I'm just simply trying to say that even in the people that we hear about all the time, there is discouragement that comes to the human heart. 
And the truth is, beloved, you and I as God's people are not immune to discouragement. And you feel it. You carry the weight of it all the time. And so I just wanted to address some of these things as we need some help from the Lord. So let's look at some biblical people who struggled with discouragement at time. You remember Adam and Eve? Can you imagine the discouragement that they felt when they realized they had caused the entire human race to fall under the curse of sin? I mean, not only did they cause it for themselves and get kicked out of the garden, but the entire human race was cast into the pit of sinful inclination. Imagine the discouragement if you're Adam and Eve, right? You're probably not going to make the cover of People magazine. How about Abraham and Sarah? After they were promised a son by God himself, 25 years, 25 years of living with the uncertainty of whether that promise is going to be fulfilled or not. And you say, well, yeah, no, don't say that, Pastor, because they believed. No, they really didn't because they took matters in their own hands. You remember? That's what brought Ishmael into the world. And a whole series of problems came from that. Great discouragement. How about Joseph? Way back in Genesis when his brothers sold him into slavery, hated him so badly that they would disregard their father and throw this young boy into a pit, leaving him there until they decided that wasn't a good deal. So they pulled him out and then sold him to the caravan going into Egypt. And God wrote the story from there. Or how about when you're the chief cupbearer and Joseph gives a dream that saves your life while in prison, but then you're forgotten about after the cupbearer leaves. That's what happened to Joseph. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 40? He has this amazing dream about the baker and the cupbearer. The baker gets his head lobbed off. Joseph says, hey, would you remember Pharaoh? Remember when, me when you get out of prison? He forgets, the text tells us. Imagine the discouragement there that Joseph must experience. Now, I want to read you a couple of passages of Scripture because they just mean so much to me, and so I'm kind of letting you listen in on my mind here for a minute. Uh, how about Moses? Moses, the, the man who God used for all those years to lead the Hebrews out of bondage, the miraculous things that they saw, and, and ultimately leading them to the promised land. Well, there came a point where the people were tired of living in the wilderness. You know, People kind of get tired of stuff. They wanted some meat to eat. And in Numbers chapter 11, here's what we read. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families and each man at the doorway of his tent and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses was displeased. Now, what are they weeping about? They're not weeping because they're necessarily in the wilderness. They're weeping because they don't have what they want. And so Moses gets ticked. And he says to God, why have you been so hard on me? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am alone and not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I've found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness. Parents, that would be a good verse to hang on your refrigerator wall when you're dealing with your little children. Mom, give me some meat. 
You can say, God, just kill me now if I have to keep dealing with these children. Oh, my gosh. You can edit that out of the tape, please. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't, don't use that. How about Joshua when the people wouldn't listen to the command of the Lord at Ai? Remember, they had just crossed over the river. Now Moses, out of his rebellion, doesn't get to pass into the promised land. Discouragement all over the place, as you can imagine. He's in the wilderness for all those years, and finally at the end when he can see the land, God says, no, you're not going to pass over. Talking about discouragement. Oh, my goodness. But then Joshua has to take up the mantle, and he finds out that uh, Achan disregards his command and steals some of the accursed things out of Ai, the city that they're about to conquer. 36 Hebrews get killed, and Joshua's just beside himself. And he says in Joshua 7, he tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, which was a sign of mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? And this was before Joshua knew what was going on. If only we'd been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. In other words, why in the world did we come over here? We would have been better off to stay over there. You hear the discouragement in his voice? What can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies for the Canaanites and the inhabitants and everybody's going to hear about it? And he goes on and he says, your name is going to be hurt from all this. And you can just hear Joshua talking about the discouragement that he feels in his heart. Well, it doesn't end there. As we pro- progress through the Bible, we've got Elijah Remember, Elijah sees this great and incredible work of the Lord as the prophets of Baal are slain. In fact, he has a part in all of that. And then Jezebel, that wicked woman, gets word of what Elijah has done. And she says, hey, buddy, I'm going to get your head. Well, all of a sudden, Elijah gets really fearful and he runs for his life. And that's what we find in 1 Kings 19. He hides under a tree And he says to the Lord that he might die. He says, this is too much. Oh, Lord, take my life. I'm better off to be with my father's discouragement. And then there's David who fled from his own son, Absalom. Imagine that. His son's after his life. And he writes Psalm 13, verses 1 through 4. He says, oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemies will say I've overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Wow, what a powerful picture of the human heart of the king of Israel, discouraged over what was happening in his life. And there's Jonah so discouraged about how God could have compassion on the Ninevites. Remember that? He even wants God to kill him because God is going to be gracious to his enemies. And that should be a hint for us as well. Sometimes our discouragement comes from the wrong reasons when when God may be using it for something else. And then, of course, there's Paul who, under some unknown situation in Ephesus, we're not told what it is in the Scripture. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. He's just telling the story of what happened to them. That we were burdened excessively, listen, beyond our strength. Have you ever been there? So that we despaired even of life. 
And what Paul's saying there is, this is the Apostle Paul now. He's saying, it had gotten so bad, our emotions had so overwhelmed us that we were saying it would be better to be dead than to go through this. So I'm just simply trying to say to us that there are people that even God has used that have suffered through a lot of discouragement. Did you know that the Lord himself went through times of discouragement? It's true. When the disciples couldn't cast out a demon out of a boy, and this story is told a couple different times, He says to them, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How would you like for the Lord to say that to you? How long do I have to put up with you anyway? I mean, that's discouragement. And then, of course, for our text today, and we'll get through this pretty quickly, the disciples were facing great discouragement at this particular point. And there's really no greater illustration in my mind than here in chapter 14. And so as we look at this subject of discouragement this morning, it's important that we understand something right from the get-go. And that is, you have divine blessings that the world doesn't have. Okay, So etch that in your mind somewhere. In the midst of your discouragement, no matter what it is, God has given to you divine blessings that the world doesn't have. You're special, which should give you some real comfort. And all those blessings, though, however, are predicated really on two things. It all comes down to this. Number one, your willingness to obey God. Number one, it really comes down to your obedience to God and your faith in who you believe Jesus really to be. It always comes down to obedience and faith in Jesus. Okay, so let that be the foundation as we talk about this. Now, the context of John 14 is simply this. Let's just see if we can feel the emotions of these men. It has now come down to the last days that Jesus will be on the earth. He has been warning them, telling them this that was coming, preparing them for a long time now that he was working his way to Jerusalem to die. They understood that. At least they said they did. And it's really clear that they didn't fully understand that as we get to chapter 14 and what we just read. So Judas has left to go do his work. Jesus has dismissed him. The 11 there are remaining, and Jesus is going to give them some information that's going to help them because their world is about to be turned upside down. You know, it's one thing to say you believe. It's another thing to have to live through it, right? And that was what was happening with them. They're about to experience the greatest loss they ever ever had because not only would Jesus be leaving, but they were going to also have to endure watching him be beaten unmercifully, right? Hung on a criminal's cross, nails driven into his body, a spear thrust through his side, and mocked all through a violent death. And, And... Folks, listen, if we just put ourselves there for just a second, you're going to know that the emotional state would be heightened in incredible ways, right? Living through something like that. All of that would just absolutely shatter them. They were going to be confused. They were going to be frustrated. The anxiety would be mounting incredibly because, and we know that because after Jesus was crucified, they went back to the upper room and hid themselves for fear that they also were going to be next. Now, again, we just have to try our best to put ourselves in their place to understand what was happening in this moment that Jesus is about to address. So do your best to try to put yourself there. 
Jesus is going to bring some comfort to them, and here's what he says. We just read this. Number one, he's going to say, help comes to our troubled hearts when you change your thinking from your problems to Jesus. You've got to change your thinking from your problems to Jesus. Look at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, you've got to remember all the backdrop of what we just talked about. That's what they were experiencing. And Jesus says, boys, don't let your heart be troubled. Now, the word troubled there means to the excess, to cause you mental, emotional, physical, even distress. Don't let this happen to you. The do not there puts the emphasis on the inner self. Jesus is addressing the soul of the men. He's addressing the heart of themselves, saying, don't let this happen. Keep it from you. Keep this trouble from you. Don't let your heart or your inner self go there. That's what he's saying. Don't let yourself go there. And by the way, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. It is the Lord's command. Do not let this happen. Now, we could stop right there and that would be sufficient for us. We could hear the Lord saying to us in the midst of every discouraging situation, the Spirit of God would say to us, don't let this overwhelm you. Don't let it do that. This is a command. This is an act of obedience, right? This is why we predicated this on everything we said. Obedience and faith is where it has to start. But we would ask in our humanness, Lord, how can I keep my heart from doing that? How can I keep from being so discouraged? How can I stop it? How can I obey this command? Well, the Lord, knowing our hearts, knew the disciples would be asking that kind of question. And look what he says in the second part of the verse. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe me. In other words, as much as the disciples believed in God, and they would, as Hebrews, they would have believed in God, they were to reorient their troubled hearts to Jesus. They were to focus on who Jesus is. This is the faith issue here. And that would be either by what he has said or by who he is or both of them. When he said, don't just listen to the Lord, believe in God, yes you do, but believe also in me, God. Look at me. Understand in your hearts and believe who I say I am. And by the way, you have the ability to change your thinking. How about that? You have the ability to change your thinking from your troubled heart, from your troubled soul to me. You have that ability. You say, well, how do I have that? Well, according to Paul in Ephesians 1.9 and again in 1 Corinthians 2, God has given that ability. To his people. Ephesians 1.9, Paul says to the church, He, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. Aren't you so thankful that God is kind? Which he purposed in him, in Jesus. In other words, what redemption did for us, when God bought us out of the slave market, if you will, of, of sin, it gave to us this divinely bestowed ability to discern spiritual things. God has given that to you. You see why I said in the beginning, you have spiritual gifts and blessings that the world doesn't have. You have the ability to discern spiritual things. Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians 2, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That's capital S. 
so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. God is not hiding things from us. He's freely opened our minds. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And that's true. He can't understand them, Paul says, because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. That's you and me, right? We understand, we discern. Yet he himself is appraised by no one for who has known the mind of the Lord, that which will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Wow. Did you know that? God has given to you and me the very mind of Christ. We can discern through the things that trouble us. And that's why he says, hey, don't go there. Don't let your hearts be overwhelmed. Don't let discouragement come. So the first point simply is change your thinking from your problems to Jesus. That is critical. You have the ability because the Holy Spirit lives in you. He resides in you to not only comfort you, but to give you the help for whatever you're facing. Now, secondly, he has said here as a sub-point, God has not only given us the ability to change our thinking, but he's given us the ability to change our thinking because of who Jesus is. Because of who he is. John will write in the first chapter, and you don't have to go there, but just listen, in verse 14, the word became flesh, and he lived among us. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only forgotten, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in John's epistle, 1 John, he's going to cover this much more clearly by saying, from the very opening of the letter, what was from the beginning, what we have heard. Listen to how John describes this. What we have heard, okay, he's talking about with the physical ear here, what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, he's already identified who the word of life is. Jesus himself, who became flesh. This life, he says again in verse 2, was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy, how about that, may be made complete. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing he said earlier in the gospel account we're reading as our text today. He's saying, look, if you want to know who Jesus is, trust what we're telling you because we lived with him. We saw him. We touched him. We saw his miracles. We felt him. We heard him. We embraced him. We knew this man. It's similar to being able to say, you and I didn't live when history was being created years ago, but yet we believe certain things about it. Why? Because somebody told us about it, right? Because people who were credible in our eyes told us things that we believe to be true because of the person who gave it to us. Well, that's what John is saying here. Listen, what we're telling you is we saw Jesus, so believe who he is. We're giving you the same understanding. Even though you're not there, trust what we're telling you. This is real. He is real. 
And the reason we're telling you this is so you don't live in discouragements, but so that your joy may be fulfilled. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome that God would do this for us. And so we have these truths, really everything that we need. So basically, we got to reorient our minds. And the Lord has given to us the truth of who he is. He's given us the ability to do that. So we can't say, I I can't get out of this discouragement. I don't have the ability. That's true in the sense of your flesh, but not in the sense of the Spirit of God not being able to do it. He's given us the power to say, you know what? I'm not going to focus on this. I'm going to focus myself on who Jesus is and the truth of everything that he's promised to me. That's what Jesus is leaving with the disciples in their crazy emotional state. Here's the second thing. This comes from verses 2 and 3. He says, now just to encourage them, this is really interesting. He says, and by the way, you have a heavenly home uniquely prepared by me. This is kind of almost seems a little strange in the context. You don't think, it doesn't seem like this is where Jesus would go immediately. But I think it's important, and the reason he, I think it's the reason he does it is because he knows how necessary it is for us to be settled, Right? We like going home at night, closing the door and pushing the world out, and it makes us feel comfortable, don't we? We feel safe. Notice what he says. Don't let your heart be troubled, but look, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if I were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. In other words, I have built a home that's secure for you. You have a place to get away from all of the mess that you're experiencing in this life. Now, that's coming, that physical place, but I'm telling you, I've already prepared it for you. It's waiting. It's waiting for you. So don't be discouraged. Now, he's really referring to two things particularly here, just so you understand. One, he's talking about when the disciples would see him again in just a few days. And they would see him over a period of 40 days. We know that from Scripture until his final ascension in Acts chapter 1. Secondly, he's talking about the rapture of the church when he comes again, when he calls his people to himself. But I like this, and this is important. Notice in verse 2, if it were not so, I would have told you. He's saying, guys, listen, I'm not lying to you. In fact, we're told in Scripture, in Titus 1 and even in Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. How exciting is that? God is not saying to us this morning in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled, and by the way, I've got my fingers behind my back, like we talked about last week. Okay, He's not playing that game. He's saying this is literal truth. I'm not lying. In fact, I'm so certain of this, if I go, I will come to you again. I'm telling you this. I'm coming back. And this is why I often remind us is that in the midst of our turmoil in our life, we have to remember that the Lord is coming back. He's coming back, folks. Sometimes just just think about this. As you're driving down the road and you're listening to the radio, you just read something that's really troubling with all this mess going on, whatever subject you want it to be, just look up into the sky and say, you know what, Lord, you're coming back, aren't you? And he is. He's coming back, folks. And it's going to be amazing. So don't get lost in your discouragement thinking that these things aren't true. Jesus is saying, I am not lying. And just to be clear, he's saying, for all who trust him, you're going to live in my father's house. What an awesome thing that's going to be.
Okay? He's not shading the truth. And by the way, what an incredible place that's going to be. My wife and I like to watch those HGTV shows of Fixer Up. Pretty cool. But it's kind of amazing, too. We often scoff at the people who have this gorgeous home and say, oh, this is terrible. I mean, just everything has to be changed. My wife and I are looking at it. We're going, kidding me? I'll take that in a heartbeat. All right, you leave, I'll go. But they got to, you know, pour all the money into this enormous and elaborate place where here's what Jesus is saying. Boys, listen, you haven't had a proper bed to sleep in. Remember how Jesus said that about himself? He almost makes it sound like you haven't had a proper meal to eat. He said that of himself. I don't have anywhere. I don't have a home. But I'm telling you this, that the place you're going is going to be absolutely mind-boggling. Absolutely incredible. And he gives us just a hint of that in Revelation 21. Going to be new, new heaven, new earth. I mean, the paint job is amazing. The sheen is incredible. You won't have to pick whether it's flat, satin, or semi-gloss or gloss. It's going to glow with the luster of gold. We know that from the streets. He says in verse 4 of chapter 21, and guess the, get this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How about that? And there'll no longer be any death. There's a friend of ours. If I called their name, you'd know who it is. I've been, Debbie and I have been keeping up with her in another state whose father just passed away. And uh, there was a lot of anxiety and emotion that went on prior to his departure because there was some concern about his salvation. And there was great anxiety there. And um, praise the Lord, God gave uh, to them some amazing things that happened in the last moments. And uh, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And how joyful it is. Even last night I was texting and we were talking about how in that place now there's no death anymore. There's none of this departure stuff. You ever feel like sometimes as the older you get, you start realizing you're saying a lot more goodbyes than you're saying hellos? kind of seems that way, doesn't it? whether it's children growing up or people leaving you. In this place, there's no death and no mourning, no crying, no pain because everything else has passed away. Folks, that's a place to live, isn't it? That's a place to live. Even Disney, Walt Disney couldn't come up with all that in his great imagination. Okay, so number three, he goes on. Here's another thing. You've been given the directions to this place. You know the way. And that's what he says in verses four through six. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where we're going. How are, we, how are we supposed to know the way? Jesus says, Thomas, come on. You know the way? No, Lord, I don't know the way. How do I? Thomas is looking for a way to plug into his GPS. I mean, right? He wants to get the phone out and he wants to say, give me Google Maps, my location. Tell me, Lord, where we're going. And we'll get there. And Jesus says, no, Thomas, it doesn't work like that. You can't get there through Google. What you've got to do is reorient your understanding. I've given you the directions. Well, how is that, Lord? They're through me. You can't get there other way, in, other way, in any other way. There's no other galaxy. There's no yellow brick road. There's no emotional thing. There's no drug you can take. There's no flight path. There's no human way possible to get there on your own. You have to come through me. You have to come through me. And that's through faith in who I am. So Jesus is saying, listen, everything I have shown you has been directly from the Father because I and the Father are one. 
And if you want to get to the Father, you got to go through me. There's no other way. Now, if you pay attention to everything Jesus is teaching and all he does in the scripture, you're going to know that he and the Father are one, which means that God the Father is not approachable without some mediator. That's what the scripture says. In fact, God told Moses in Exodus 32, 33, 20, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Pretty serious. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he who is blessed and only, of so- and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. John said earlier in chapter 10, verse 1, that Jesus is the only way to God like a sheep has only one way into a pen. Now that doesn't mean a lot to you and me because we're not shepherds. But it would have in their day. They would have understood very clearly there's no other way. And Jesus even qualified it by saying, you know that the only other way is for some other guy to jump over the fence and that just is a thief. There's only one way into the sheepfold. And basically for our illustrations, there's only one set of directions to get here, to be with the Father. It is through me. And we have to remember that, and that's what Jesus is saying to these men. Men, look, in your anxiety, you cannot conjure up some other way to get rid of what you're feeling and try to make it all go away. If you want to be where I am, you've got to come through me. There's no other way. In other words... You have to obey what I'm telling you right now. If you try to find some other means, you're going to be considered a thief, like in the sheep pen illustration, and you're not going to get there. Folks, how many times do you and I, in the midst of our discouragement, try to figure out a way to not be discouraged anymore? Go through buy therapy, right? Shopping therapy, whatever it might be. We create ways to make ourselves feel better. And what the Lord is saying, look, channel your vision to me. I will help you with this. I can get you through all of this. Because he is the one who reveals God to us. And there's lots of scripture I could give you for that. So reorient your thinking. Understand you have a home waiting for you. And you know the way. You got to come through me. Fourthly, You have a relationship with the Father because you know Jesus. You have a relationship with the Father because of Jesus. Remember Brother William again, just coined his phrase that he used for us. God is looking for Jesus in us, right? We have a relationship with the Heavenly Father only because of Jesus. Listen to what he told Philip. Philip said to him in verse 8, back to our text, Lord, show us the Father. And you know what? That'll be enough. You don't have to do anything else. If you'll just show us the Father, then we'll believe you. It's like that. I just need one more proof, just one more thing, one more little thing, and everything will be fine. And we find ourselves saying, oh, if God would just do this, then I'll be okay. Right? If God would just make this happen or that happen, I'll be fine. Well, that's the same thing Philip was saying. And look what Jesus says, Philip, 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 how long have you been with me? And have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Listen, beloved, we've been given a precious gift, right? We've been given a precious gift, not only eternal life, but to have a personal relationship with the Father as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. It's all because of Christ that you and I have the relationship that we do. And it's because of this relationship, life no longer has to be based on hope. We don't need to hope. Now, I'm not talking about the biblical hope. There's a biblical hope that keeps our eye on the future. I'm talking about the earthly, fleshly hope. Well, I hope so. I hope everything works out. I hope I'll get there. No, that's flesh. That's of the evil one. Jesus is saying, boys, look, there's no need for hope anymore. You have the knowledge. You have the truth right in front of you. There's nothing else I can give you. You have what you need. So translate that would mean we don't need to be discouraged about what does or doesn't happen to us in this life. We don't need to have that. Our relationship through Jesus with the Father guarantees our life will never be outside of what God wants for us. Never. Never. You look at the things that you're discouraged over right now, the virus, the riots, whatever it might be, losing a job, it doesn't matter. If we have our focus on Jesus, everything comes through Him. And what does that mean? It means that no matter what we face in this life, our joy is not predicated on what we experience. Our joy is predicated on Jesus. Right? I mean, that's just truth. It's not built on our experiences. It's not built on what we understand or don't understand. That has nothing to do with it. Everything in this life is about what God allows and purposes for us to go through because through Him we have our hope and through Him we have our joy. That's where it comes from. And discouragement flees when we trust in who He is. Now knowing all this, let me just say, as God's people, we should never be fearful over what we do or don't understand. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. I'm alarmed And I say this in a loving way, but I'm alarmed at how fearful God's people are over the virus. Now, I'm not talking about being stupid. I'm not talking about being unwise. I'm talking about internally feeling a fear that doesn't need to be there. Right? If we really believe, as the disciples standing there in that upper room, in what Jesus has said, we have no reason to fear anything. Nothing. And that is true. Listen, are you afraid of death? Should God's people ever be afraid of death? Now, in my flesh, do I necessarily want to die? No. I still wish there's another way. But that's not God's plan. Listen to what the Lord says about death. Ecclesiastes 7.1, this is Solomon, the smartest man ever. He says, the day of our death is better than the day of our birth. How about that? You know what joy there is when a mom holds that newborn baby and everybody's so excited? It's precious, isn't it? The joy there is an incredible thing. But what God is saying is, you know what? When you say goodbye to that dear saint in death at a funeral and the body's laid out here in front of the preacher, it should be even greater joy than a baby being born. That's what he's saying. 
1 Corinthians 15, 55, greatest chapter in the world on the resurrection. Oh, death, Paul says, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It has no bearing on us anymore. Philippians 1, 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And the bonus is to die, which is gain. The bonus is death. Philippians 1.23, to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Job 14.1, life is short-lived and full of turmoil, so why do I want to stick around here? 2 Corinthians 5.6, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith. In other words, Paul said, hey, yeah, we're not there with him fully, but guess what? We've got the faith, and so we're going to trust him because one day we know we're going to be there. And then he says in verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's far better. That's the heart of a true believer, right? That's the heart of a true believer. John MacArthur said this, believers should long for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for a drink, like a poor man longs for a payday, and like a soldier longs for peace. Hope and courage in facing death is the last opportunity for Christians to exhibit their faith in God to prove their hope of heaven is genuine and to adorn their confidence in the promises of God. Death becomes a display of our witness of who we believe. Right? That's what he's saying. So don't be afraid, beloved. How can you be so discouraged or discouraged about anything when we've been given everything? Everything. All right, and fifthly, there's two more points and we'll be done. You've been given a bigger purpose than yourself. Look at verse 12. He says, guys, listen, let's sort through all this. Listen to what I'm telling you. You've been given a far bigger purpose than what you could ever imagine. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. But watch this. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Greater works means, doesn't mean more powerful. Jesus knocked it out of the park with the power, right? What he's saying is, in extent... To a greater extent will you do things. Jesus had his 12 and his world there in those three years. But look what the gospel has done. And it's come as a result of God's people being faithful to proclaiming the good news. Right? That's why you and I are here this morning. We have the good news because people faithful to the word gave us the gospel. Now they didn't know all this yet. But when the Holy Spirit would come on them and Acts. In the book of Acts and Pentecost, that's when they're going to get a good understanding and a great education about this and start believing what Jesus has said and they was going to send them out to create this ministry to begin. And, and, uh, and it's absolutely true what happened. And from that time, the gospel is spread. And so we need to understand that God's people have always been, some, been about something bigger. Our purpose is to be about something bigger than ourselves. What am I saying? Discouragement causes us to look inward, right? The woe is me. And I'm not minimizing that because I feel it just like you do. But the reality is God wants us to focus on the bigger picture, the beyond us, that we have a part to play in the things that are coming. In fact, he would use this same understanding throughout the scripture. Just one context would be Esther. That famous quote that Esther makes in chapter 4. You remember the story of Esther 
where she gets word that the edict has been given to destroy and annihilate all the Hebrew people of which she is a Hebrew person. But she, through God's divine providence, and it's really just that, comes into power as the queen. You have to read the book to see it all. But through God's divine providence, she becomes queen. And so her uncle Mordecai says to her in chapter 4.13, Who knows, Esther? Who knows? We don't really know for sure, but it could very well be you have been placed in this position for just this very purpose, to save God's people. Now, I don't know what God is doing through the virus. I don't know what God is doing through all the tension. I don't know why people are having to lose uh, jobs and all that kind of stuff other than just the effects of human life. What I do know is that God is saying to his people, to you and me, don't be discouraged. You very well may be the avenue through which God does an amazing work in the life of some other individual. That is very probable. It's very possible. But you're never going to see that and never be a part of that fully if you don't keep your eyes focused on Jesus and what he wants. Critical. Critical. Paul said of himself in Acts chapter 20, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. You know what he's saying? I do what I do for God because this life is not about me. It's not about me. That is the hardest hurdle for any human heart to overcome. We are so about ourselves. We are so about ourselves. But God's people need to reorient their thinking. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. It's not about you. It's not about you. You obey me, and I will do through you what I purpose to do. But you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. And all the great men and women of God have understood this. You remember Jim Elliott? I mentioned his wife earlier. The missy's going to lead the ladies through in the book. Jim Elliott was the missionary to the Alka Indians. Sacrificed his life as they landed their plane, if you've seen the story. He was the one who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. He's no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. You know what Jim Elliott was saying? I will gladly give my life because I cannot really lose it. I'm safe with Jesus. So whatever happens to me happens because I know that I'll be with the Lord. He understood that. So we have a much bigger role than ourselves, much bigger than ourselves. And Satan wants so desperately to keep you focused on your problems. He knows he's not one. But if he can keep you locked in discouragement and despair, he gets the advantage. And he works overtime to do that with making you look at what your problems are and with what you want for yourself and to act selfishly about what you think you should have. It's the you, 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 you. And when you and I focus on ourselves, there's a lot to be discouraged about, isn't there? I mean, just stand in front of the mirror. Pretty discouraging. I mean, it's just true, isn't it? Somebody said to me recently, okay, I don't care about getting older, but why do we have to get wrinkly? 
right? I mean, it's just a lot to be discouraged about, right? Listen, we are the continuation of the early disciples. You've got to believe that. We are the continuation. God started the story. We're continuing it. That's our role, to give the gospel. That's why he called us in Matthew 28, go make disciples. Go make disciples. That was his instruction. Go do it. He did not say, notice this, he did not say, boys, go sit in a corner and worry about the things of life that you're going to have to face and be all discouraged. That's not what he said. He said, go. I'll be with you. I'll give you the power. I'm in you. You have a relationship with the Father because of me. I've already told you that I've prepared a home for you. I've given you the directions how to get there. Right? There's no reason that we can't have this life and enjoy it. But it may come at great sacrifice physically, but you've got to be willing to do that. Don't let your circumstances drive your heart. Don't let it happen. Let your circumstances drive you into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at life? It really is. Again, if Satan can keep you fearful of all what's going on, then he's got you right where he wants you. Okay, let's close with this. Number Verses 13 and 14. How about this? You have the assurance that God will always answer your prayers. Wow. Boy, that's a book that will sell. Right? I mean, good grief. We could all be millionaires if we just published that book. But that's what he says, and we'll qualify this in just a second. Listen to what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I... What? I'll think about it. That's what we think he thinks, right? Well, he must not be answering because, you know, he's just still thinking about it. But that's not what he says. That will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, key, there's a key right there. Underline that. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What he's saying to them is, listen, You've got to remove your will from the equation. This is about what I want. We've already discussed that. So when you ask me anything that aligns with my will, which, by the way, will always be purposed to bring my Father glory, I'll answer it, no matter what it is, if it aligns with my Father's will. And John would say the same thing later in 1 John. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Now, this is a big deal. Because up to this point, I'm talking about for the disciples, because for the disciples up to this point, Jesus had provided everything during these three years. Remember he said, go out of the thing, out of the world, don't take anything with you. You remember the 5,000, the 4,000 he fed? At one point he even paid Peter's taxes. Remember the story of the fish where he cast the he says, hey, go cast the line out and the first fish you catch, open up its mouth and get the coin out of it and pay the taxes with that? That's a good trick. It wasn't a trick. That was a miracle. But that was to pay the taxes. So everything had been provided by the Lord and now he was going to be gone. And he's saying to them, guys, look, I'm telling you, trust me and I will make sure that everything comes about that needs to come about according to my will. Whatever you ask, I will do it so that my Father is glorified. Now, some people have asked, well, when I pray for needs to be met, they don't always happen. 
But Jesus has just said that he's going to answer all my requests. What's the deal? Am I just not holding my mouth right? I mean, do I need to stand on one foot? Do I need to say a little chant over stuff? Do I need to burn incense? I mean, people come up with all kinds of crazy things, right? Well, we've already answered the question. Whatever you ask in my name is what I will do for you. The problem is, James says, you ask with the wrong motives. Your heart is wrong. Chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Usually our prayers go something like this. Dear Father, please, 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 yada, 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 yada. And in the back of our mind, we're going so that I don't have to experience any pain. Right? That's really what we're saying. Lord, give me a job because I don't want to be hungry. Right? Give me clothes because I don't want to be naked. Give me a house, and oh, by the way, a nice house because I really don't like to be uncomfortable, and could you make it with air conditioning because I really don't like the heat. I mean, we just have a list in our heart that goes on and on and on and on. Now, I'm not saying there's something wrong with those kinds of things, but the reason we often don't get our prayers answered is because we're selfish about what we're asking for. And God is simply saying, if you ask, According to my will, this here it is, 1 John 3:22. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Verse 14 of chapter 5. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There it is, according to His will. So our prayers need to change. Our prayers need to be something like, Lord, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you? as long as it's according to your will. Now, when we say that, we've just released control from ourselves and given it to God, right? We've just said, Lord, I'm taking my hands off of this and I'm going to trust you for what the outcome needs to be because you know the picture better than I do. Now, what does that mean tangibly? We say, Lord, please don't let me get the virus. Well, guess what? it might be God's will for you to get the virus. That's right. Not because God wants to bring some harm upon you, but because God has a bigger picture to glorify himself through whatever he does or whatever he allows. And so our prayers need to be, Lord, I really don't want to get the virus. Would you keep me safe from the virus? But if it's your will that I have to go through this, then help me trust you. Do you see how that changes everything? All of a sudden, we've completely reoriented our thinking to trusting him. Lord, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want the money to go away. I don't want my health. I don't want my life. I don't want whatever to go to pot. But would you do it according to your will? Because God may say, you know what? I want you to lose your job for a little while. I want you to experience some health issues. I want you to go through some tough times. Why? I can't answer for God except for what he says. And that because he loves us and he has a bigger picture to bring glory to his father. But he's promised us he will get us there. And that's why he says, hey, keep your eyes on your house up there. Don't keep your eyes on the things going on down here. Okay? So, maybe there's some things that need to change. Listen, If you belong to God, no matter what the situation is, he's going to take care of you. Isn't that awesome? Man, that's awesome. 
That is good stuff. That is good stuff. What a faithful God. Okay, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord. We have to start there. We just have to start with thankful hearts. Not necessarily hearts that understand. Just like the disciples, they didn't understand either. But Lord, what we do understand is the truth that you've given us and we believe and we affirm because we know you to be true. We know you're not a liar. We know that you're God. And so Lord, help us today as we thank you to surrender ourselves to your will, whatever that may look like. Help us to be smart, help us to be wise, to be careful, considerate, caring, of one another, sensitive, and help us to be full of grace because we know we're going to fail, we're going to get irritated, we're going to be discouraged. So reorient us regularly back to this truth. Let not our hearts be troubled. We don't need to be. We can change that with your help. Thank you for giving us the power of your spirit to live in us. And Lord, may we leave this place going with full confidence that no matter what we face, we are safe in your arms because we know we have a greater place waiting for us. And so, Lord, we will eternally be thankful and grateful to you as you lead us through the path of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.